If you don't know what it means to be missional, uh, hang in there. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and define that for you guys here in a little bit. Um, I wanted to get started today with a quick word of prayer. God, as we start this new series, I just pray that my words, my thoughts, would reflect your heart, that we would understand your word, that we would apply it to our lives, and that we would be transformed by it. Lord, I pray that you will use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to start out by asking you guys a question today. That's this. If somebody were to ask you, what do you think would be one of the most important truths for a new Christian, or, or any Christian for that matter, for a new Christian to wrap their minds around, what do you think that would be? What would be the most important truth for them to wrap their minds around? And I'm not referring to the essentials of the Christian faith, things like uh, the deity of Christ or the resurrection or the Trinity. I'm not talking about things like that. I'm talking about principles that they can apply to their lives that will help get them through the bumps and the turns in the road and the unexpected events in their lives. What would be the one truth that would get them through it? Let me, let me give you a little bit of an analogy. Let's say that you've spent many years in the military, and you know what boot camp is all about. And you have a friend who has decided to join the military, and they are now a part of the U.S. military, and so they're going off to boot camp. And, you know, they, they might be excited and happy and everything, but you know that this is going to be one of the most challenging times of their lives. You know that boot camp isn't easy uh, because an essential part of boot camp is learning to overcome one's fears. Uh, it's, they, they, they will try to break you so that they can mold you into their own. And so as a means to that end, you can guarantee that the drill sergeant and the, the training staff will go to great lengths to push somebody as far out of their comfort zone as they possibly can because that is scary for people. Being pushed out of your comfort zone is scary for people. So you've got this friend who signed up. They're on their way to boot camp, and you want them to have one principle that's going to help them through that time. Now apply that analogy to the Christian faith. What? Let me ask you again. What would be one thing that you would want a new Christian or, or any Christian to wrap their mind around to help get them through the bumps and the hard times as a Christian. Well, one of the first passages I learned as a Christian when I first became a Christian was trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 6. That was something that I learned very, very early on. I actually found a song uh, that repeated that, and that made it really easy for me to remember it. But looking back on my life as a Christian, keeping that verse hidden in, in my heart has seen me through a lot of hard times, a lot of, a lot of turbulence, uh, a lot of heartache. And if I'm being honest, uh, I can't say that I have always applied it. I've learned to, but I haven't always applied it. Uh, in fact, there were a lot of years in my early Christian walk when, uh, yeah, I gave up on, on trusting God and, and leaning on Him instead of myself. Instead, I, I was doing what everybody else around me was doing. I was trying to make my own way. I was trying to figure out life for myself instead of trusting in the Lord. And, you know, I, I remember the exact moment that I realized that my way was a dead-end street. I was actually sitting in my car 
uh, out in the parking lot of the casino that I was working at at the time, and all of a sudden I was just unbelievably aware of the fact that I had placed myself, placed my heart so far away from God, and it was a moment of brokenness for me. I realized that my way wasn't going to cut it. If you've ever watched uh, Looney Tunes, maybe you remember uh, how Wiley e. Coyote would chase the roadrunner, and sometimes he'd chase him right off a cliff, and he'd hang there in midair for a second, and he'd kind of look down and look up as if to say, oops, nice knowing you, and you know, boo, there he goes. Yeah, that, that was me spiritually at that point. Um, you know, that, was, that was where I was. That's where I found myself when I refused to trust in the Lord with all of my own heart. I thought that I could make my own path straight, but I learned in the school of hard knocks that only the Lord can make the path of a crooked man straight. Now, before we go any further, um, anytime I talk about this verse, I like to talk about what it means to acknowledge. That's a weird word. Uh, If I acknowledge somebody, I'm like, what's up, dude? Nice to see you. Is that what we're being told to do with God well, no, uh, actually it's not. Uh, but this is a conditional passage, and this, this word acknowledge is kind of the hinge of this if-then proposition. If we acknowledge him in all of our ways, then he will make our paths straight. So what does it mean to acknowledge? Well, the, the Hebrew word for acknowledge, any Seinfeld fans? Any of you guys watch Seinfeld ever? Yada, 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 you remember that? Yada is, uh, is the Hebrew word here. And, 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 it, and actually, 645 times in our Bibles, it's actually translated as to know. Six times it's translated as acknowledge. So 100 times more, more than 100 times more often, it's uh, translated as to know. So that with that in mind, the real question here is, what would it look like for me to know the Lord in all of my ways? It would mean that he's the central aspect of everything that I do, absolutely everything that I do. He is the driving force. He's a part of it. And I think that's a fair conclusion. You know, if I make God the center of everything I do, if I surrender myself to him and follow him, he'll make my path straight. If I'm willing to surrender myself and follow him. So I would say that this is at least one of the most important fundamental truths life-living truths uh, that anybody could have as a young Christian. If we don't get this, if we don't understand it, if we refuse to acknowledge the Lord in all of our ways, uh, we are in for hardship, pain, and disappointment in our walks with Jesus. We'll walk a, a steep, crooked path that's you know got one pitfall, one trap, right after another, one after another, after another. And the sooner we come to the realization that it's not about me. The sooner we come to that realization, the easier our lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus, are going to be. So with that in mind, we need to realize, first of all, that a straight path isn't necessarily an easy path. Uh, Just because we have a straight path in life doesn't mean we have an easy life. One of the teachings out there that makes me just want to puke every time I see it on TV is, uh, is the idea that faith is an umbrella that will protect us from the, heart, the, the rain of hardship. Faith is an umbrella that protects us from the rain of hardship. If you just turn on your TV, you'll find preachers telling you that you know, Jesus died so that you can be financially prosperous, so that you can have your best life now. 
You'll find teachers telling you that you can have your health restored if you just have enough faith. If your faith is strong enough, you'll be healed. Nonsense. The Bible does say a lot about money, but really, if you wanted to sum up what it says about money, it tells you that money is the number one contender with God for your heart. No, Jesus did not come to give you your best life now. He came and died for you to restore your relationship with God, to restore the broken relationship that humanity has with God so that we can spend eternity in his presence. And that is my idea of the best life. If faith protected us from hard times, I I have one question. Why didn't Peter get on the people that he was writing to for not having that faith? After all, they were being persecuted intensely. They were looking at death any moment. So if, if faith protects us from hardship, then why didn't Peter say, you know what, you guys, if only you would be a little bit more faithful, life would just be roses. No, instead, he's encouraging them to persevere through the hard times and to keep their faith. Now, the passage that we're going to look at today is not about how to navigate the storms of your life unscathed. It's not about how to avoid hardship and disappointments in life. It's not about how to prosper either financially or materially. Rather, it's about how to prosper spiritually. That's what Jesus is is really more concerned with. It's about finding that place in your walk with Jesus where you come to the realization, it's not about me. This this isn't all about me. And we, we find ourselves in situations, it's about finding ourselves in situations that we have no control of and just letting go and saying, God, I trust you and I'm going to follow you through this. It's about being in awe of God and knowing that he's sovereign and yielding to his sovereignty and following him through the hard times in life. Our passage today confronts this American ideology that says, give me comfort, give me convenience, or give me death. That's the American dream. That's part of it. Now Matthew is writing to a group of people, he's writing to Jews, who are extremely sincere and extremely religious about their their faith. Now, a lot of people in our day and age would say that being religious and being sincere is all that God asks for, but the very fact that Matthew is writing to these religious, sincere Jews is pretty makes it pretty clear that being sincere and religious is nothing but a fancy one-way ticket to hell. One of the greatest tragedies about hell is that there are going to be sincere people there. There are going to be sincere people in hell. At least they they would claim to be sincere. I would say if somebody's really sincere, God will reveal himself to them. But people who really think that they're sincere are going to be in hell. Now, as we look at the context of our passage today, uh, we should remember that Matthew has just recorded Jesus giving what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's been telling a group of Jews, uh, including some very religious, sincere people, that if they want to go to heaven, they have to be even more righteous than the most righteous among them. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that would have sounded like from their cultural mindset, from their perspective? In essence, Jesus just told the people that he won't let them into the kingdom if all they think they are is religious and sincere. And he told us that there's going to be a day that'll come in the future when these people who think that they're sincere come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not heal people in your names? And Jesus tells us that he's going to say, 
I don't know you. Go away. That's a, that's a shocking statement. See, here's the problem with being sincere and religious and relying on good works to make your way to heaven. The problem is you'll never get there. You'll never get there. It's never enough to please God. If you were to ask a Muslim or a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, when will you know that you've done enough good works to please God so that you know that you're going to heaven? You know what their answer is? We'll never know. God's, the, the Muslim will say, you know, God will choose who he wants to choose. You know, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll just say, there's no way to know. We can't know when we've pleased God enough. And so the scene is set for the religious person to get on this treadmill of good works. And I call it a treadmill because you guys know I do a lot of running, right? And my allergies have been kind of bad the past, you know, a couple weeks. I've done a lot of running on the treadmill. You know, I can run for eight miles and go nowhere. And that's what, I'm, that's what I mean when I refer to a treadmill of good works. You do all these good works and you don't go anywhere. You just stay in one spot. Jesus knows that it's not enough. And his message in chapter 7 is basically, you've got to let me do it for you. The message of the gospel is that we're not saved by good works, but that we're saved for good works. Now, as we come into chapter 8, first of all, at the beginning of the chapter, we see uh, that Jesus heals a leper. And of course, lepers, according to the law of Moses, were ceremonially unclean. And so nobody wanted to even go near them. But Jesus sees the faith of this leper, and he heals him. This, this guy who would have been considered unclean, ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, Jesus heals him. Next, Matthew tells us that a Roman centurion guard comes up to Jesus and says, my servant is sick, I know that you can, can heal him, will you heal him? And we have to understand that from the Jewish perspective, a Roman centurion guard is scum of the earth. Scum of the earth. And Jesus sees the faith of this Roman centurion guard. And listen to what he says. He says, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith in anyone in Israel. That's what he says right in front of all these people who just heard him say all these things about having to be just completely righteous and having faith. And Jesus says to somebody that they thought was scum of the earth, this guy's got more faith than anyone in all of Israel that I've seen. And so, <laughs> yeah, you want to talk about a dagger in the, in the heart of these Jewish leaders. So the disciples start to see that, that faith or, or trusting in Jesus is what he covets from us. And so then Jesus goes and he heals Peter's mother of a fever. Look at who he's healed. A leper, a Roman centurion guard's servant, and a woman. Now we're seeing what Jesus is doing. He's healing the people who were considered the lowest elements of society because of their faith, because they believed. It wasn't based on their righteousness because, according to the, to the Jews, these people knew nothing about righteousness. A leper, a Roman centurion guard, and a woman. You know, those were, those were kind of secondary at best. But Jesus heals them. And so all of a sudden... The disciples and everyone around start, start catching on. Hey, Jesus can, can heal people. So they start bringing people to him to be healed. And that's where we find ourselves when we come to verse 18 here in Matthew chapter 8. Here we read, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. 
So like I said, people are catching on. They, they realize what Jesus can do. And so people start swarming in. And Jesus says, take me to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now listen to what we see next. What we see next are two very important, crucial principles about following Jesus. Verses 19 to 22. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, or rabbi, depending on your translation, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now the first thing we need to understand is that when a scribe says, Teacher or or rabbi, I will follow you, Those aren't words that a scribe would say to anyone. In fact, those are some very significant words. In that culture, a rabbi's disciples would follow him by observing the rabbi as he goes about his his daily business and imitating his lifestyle. When they say, I want to follow you, it means I want to be like you. That's what he's asking. They'd sit under the, the teachings of the rabbi. They'd live by the principles that the rabbi taught them. That's what the scribe is asking to do with Jesus. Teach me. Teach me so that I can become like you. The first principle that we need to know about following Jesus comes from Jesus' response to the scribe who vowed to follow him. Jesus tells the man that animals have a place to live, but that following him doesn't bring any such guarantees. In other words, Jesus is saying you can count, you can almost guarantee that life is going to be tough if you follow me. There are no guarantees of comfort. Now, we don't know if the scribe continued to follow Jesus or not. Uh, Jesus isn't rebuking him. He's also not inviting him. Instead, he's just making the scribe aware of a very basic principle. You need to count the cost. You need to consider what you're in for if you really want to follow me because it's not about you and it won't be easy. That's the first principle. Matthew tells us of a second person, a second disciple, who approaches Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but let me go bury my dad first. Let me go bury my dad first. And Jesus responds with some words that we might think are, are kind of harsh. I mean, when I read this, I think, wow, this is, this is pretty harsh. He says, follow me and let the dead, and allow the dead to bury their own dead. I mean, is that harsh? Well, in our culture, we'd say, yeah, that, that's really harsh, uh, maybe even cruel. From our cultural mindset, through our cultural goggles, uh, we might say, Jesus, you are, you are one cold-hearted dude, man. Uh, you know, this, this guy, give this guy a break. You know, his dad just died. He just wants to bury his dad. You know, what's, what's wrong with that? But here's the thing. When you understand the culture, you, you realize that his dad did not just die. His dad didn't just die. In fact, there are two scenarios here that are possible. The first possible scenario is that his dad's still living, and he wants to hang around and gather the inheritance when his dad does die. So he's saying, Jesus, I'll follow you someday. But first, let me wait for my dad to die. I've got this responsibility. You know, I've got to, got to bury my dad when he gets there, and you know, he's, he's got a few years left. So that's the first possible scenario. The second possible scenario is that his dad died over a year ago. Because, see, in in the Jewish culture, what they would do is they wouldn't bury somebody right away. What did they do with Jesus when when he died? 
They wrapped him in linens and spices, and they put him in a tomb. He wasn't just going to stay there. Because what they do is they, they leave that body to decompose and rot for at least a year. And after a year, they'd come back and they'd collect the bones of the person, and then they would bury the bones in the family's ossuary. So either way, this guy's dad didn't just die. Either way, what we see here is that this guy is just making excuses. And so Jesus, Jesus isn't discouraging him from keeping the commitments and responsibilities that he has to his family. He's not saying that the man has to abandon you know, the responsibilities that he has to his family. What Jesus is taking issue with here is the man's use of the word first. Let me first go bury my father. Let me do that before I follow you. Jesus sees that what the man is doing is really trying to make a half-hearted commitment to following Jesus. He sees this guy with one leg on either side of the fence, and he's trying to straddle it. Jesus, I, I want to follow you, but, but wait. I want to follow you, but I, I've got other things that I've got to do first. And Jesus says, no. No, leave the dead to bury their own. Leave the dead to bury their own, because I come first. It's about me. So the first principle that we got from Jesus' interaction with the scribe is that following him doesn't guarantee that life is just going to be roses. The second principle that we get from Jesus' interaction with this other disciple who goes unnamed, again, we don't know if he followed Jesus or not. The second principle is that following Jesus means that Jesus is your first commitment. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. He is the priority, always. Know him in all of your ways. And again, the message is pretty simple. Count the cost, because it's not about you. See, if we're not willing to abandon our desires and surrender every earthly thing we've ever wanted, you've got to wonder, are, are we really ready to make a full-on commitment to following Jesus? Are we really ready to do that? If there's something else that we're thinking, uh, I kind of want to do this first. In our day and age, people say, I'll go to church someday. But right now, I want to enjoy life. Right now, I want the freedom to get drunk. Right now, I want the freedom to go out with my boyfriend and girlfriend and do things that I know the Bible tells us not to do. And so someday, someday I'll go to church. Maybe when I have kids, and then they have kids, and they say, well, maybe someday when the kids move out, I'll go to church. Half-hearted commitments. Only an unconditional, unswerving commitment to Jesus will meet the demands of following him. Now, as these conversations have transpired, I imagine, I, I can kind of see what's happened. There were crowds around him, crowds of disciples and, and other people who were bringing people to him. And as Jesus has, has given these couple of answers, the numbers have kind of just tapered off. You know, some, some people may, may have heard him and said, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not so ready to follow Jesus after all. Um, I'm sure he'll be back. And so what we see is, as I imagine, is that people have been just kind of gradually tapering off. Uh, I'm not ready for this. All right, let's go on. Verses 23 to 25. When he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. 
Now, this storm takes place on the Sea of Galilee. Um, the Sea of Galilee is lo- located approximately 680 feet below sea level, and it's, it's got these towering uh, mountains uh, not far from it. And because of its low altitude, the weather is typically extremely warm. Uh, it's it's going to be a, a little bit humid, maybe a little bit warm compared to Seattle weather, right? Um, but it, it's going to be warm, and the water is usually extremely calm because because of its low altitude, uh, winds usually don't come in and, and stir up the waves. So to the west uh, of the water, what you find is several valleys and gullies, and they're much higher up. And what we find is that in these valleys and gullies, cold air gets trapped. And so when you have a, a push of this, this cold air, when it gets pushed toward the Sea of Galilee, we all know what happens when you have really cold air colliding with, with really warm air. What you get is like kind of a, a funnel effect. And so within a matter of minutes, the Sea of Galilee, to this day, this, this is still a phenomenon that we see today, the Sea of Galilee can go from extremely calm to extremely dangerous, extremely violent in less than five minutes. And this is the picture that we get here in Matthew uh, chapter 8, verse 24. The seawaters have suddenly become so violent that the waves are crashing down on the boat. I picture kind of like a, a hurricane type of wind uh, in my mind, but Matthew tells us that it's a great storm. Uh, a, a great storm. <laughs> That's a little bit of an understatement if we're being honest. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been in some, some pretty great storms. Uh, there was one time in North Carolina when we had rain that was so intense that in about 10 minutes, 10 or 15 minutes, we had a creek behind our house that was normally pretty low. But within 10 or 15 minutes, that water was almost up at our house. That's what I call a great storm. Man, it was raining hard. Um, but yeah, it must have been really great because what I've been in doesn't compare to what they find themselves in right here on the Sea of Galilee. And here they are. Scared out of their minds. You know, some of these guys are fishermen, uh, so they're familiar with these types of circumstances. They know the dangers. Some of them, like Matthew, he was a tax collector. I mean, can you imagine putting an accountant out in the middle of a hurricane? That's that's the picture. That's that's where Matthew is. They're scared out of their minds. Now, the the Greek for uh, for great storm is really cool. The Greek words are mega seismic. Uh, those are the words. Of course, uh, I probably don't need to give too much of an explanation for what mega means. Anyone want to take a guess? <laughs> it's something big, something really, really, really humongous, something bigger than we care to mess with, right? Something that's mega. Uh, seismic, of course, we're probably familiar with that word because we all know what seismic activity is, right? It's when the earth shakes. It's uh, the tectonic, uh, tectonic plates shaking at the core of their foundation, leaving things different after than they were before. Let me ask you, have you ever been through a mega seismic? Something that you go into one way, you go in thinking, you know, this is a normal life, and you come out, and there's no such thing as normal anymore. There's a new normal. You're sailing along in life. The waters are peaceful and calm, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, boom, something comes up that's beyond your ability to control, something that shakes and rocks the foundations of your world, turning it upside down at the core of its foundations. I mean, I think we've, we've probably all had them, um, and if you haven't, um, you know, buckle up, 
because it's going to happen. It's just part of life. Big things happen, big painful things happen, things that are beyond our ability to control, and they will shake our very foundations. A mega seismic. About 14 years ago, 14, 15 years ago, Christine and I got a call in the middle of the night. That dreaded call that you get in the middle of the night. We were told that we needed to get down to the hospital immediately because Christina's cousin had accidentally shot himself in the head. It really was an accident. He thought the gun was empty, pointed it at his head, and he shot. And so we get down to the hospital. He didn't last. He, he, he didn't make it. It was, it was horrible. I mean, it, it was an absolutely horrific event. And his mother was just beside herself. And who can blame her? How can life go on after you've seen your son laying in a hospital bed after just shooting himself in the head? How can anything ever be normal again? Would anything, would anything ever be normal again? Mega seismic. So the question that we have to ask here is this. How did, these, how did this motley crew, these experienced fishermen and you know, tax collectors and uh, you know, so on and so forth, how did these guys who had spent their lives, many of them had spent their lives on the seas, how did they get themselves into this situation? It's by following Jesus. That's how they got there, by following Jesus. Now I want to say two things about this. The first thing, uh, it's not going to be anything new for you guys, I would, I would guess, the second thing, it might, might shake you a little bit, might rattle your faith a little bit. The first thing is this. Following Jesus and being a Christian does not shelter you from pain and hardship and difficult times in life. They happen to the most devout followers of Jesus. So that's the first thing. Life isn't necessarily going to be roses. We can almost expect, we can almost guarantee to expect hardship. The second thing, this is what's going to maybe rock your world a little bit, is sometimes God won't just allow those difficult times to come into your life. Sometimes he'll decree them. Sometimes he will be the one who says, you need this storm in your life. You need this mega seismic in your life. Now, not all the time. It's not all the time that he's the one who decrees them. But sometimes, Sometimes they come become, because of somebody's free will. Uh, you know, they, they sin and you end up being kind of collateral damage. But sometimes, sometimes God brings a mega seismic into your life as a means of reminding you of your own inability to control everything around you as a means of strengthening your faith. Your faith won't shelter you from the hard times. Your faith will give you the strength to get through the hard times. But sometimes... God says you need a mega seismic in your life so that you can be strengthened in your walk with me. Listen to what we read next. Verse 26. He, Jesus, he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. We'll stop there. So first Jesus rebukes the disciples. Then he turns to the seas and the wind, and he rebukes them. And then, Matthew tells us it's, it's perfectly calm, perfect calmness. All of a sudden, there's not a ripple on the water to be seen. It goes from raging to perfectly calm like that, like that. What this tells us 
is that I can be following Jesus. I can be completely committed to Him, having counted the cost, having abandoned my own agenda, my own desires, my own will to Him, and yet I can find myself in the middle of a mega-seismic. See, the American Jesus might exist for the sake of our comfort, of our happiness, maybe being blessed financially, but the biblical Jesus reminds us that we can end up smack dab in the middle of a great storm by following him. If there's an application to be found here, we don't need to look any further than the next verse. Look at what the disciples do. The men, the disciples, were amazed and said, what kind of a man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? The men are amazed. They don't say anything. They're just in awe of what Jesus has done. And they're saying to themselves, who is this guy that he can control the elements of the earth? See, this story isn't about you or me. This story isn't about the storm. It's not about avoiding storms. This story is about the majesty of Christ. And it's about the authority that he has over everything that belongs to him. And everything belongs to him. That's the purpose of a mega seismic in the life of a Christian. It's so that Jesus can show you, hey, you're not in control. I have authority here. This is mine Nothing is outside of the spectrum of control with Jesus. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. You can be at the end of your resources, trying to figure things out, trying to control things, in the middle of all this hurt and pain, and you're not letting go. You're letting bitterness fester. And Jesus hasn't even started to rebuke the winds and the seas yet. He hasn't even started. He's sleeping while you're worrying. He's at peace while you're worrying. He wants to amaze you. And sometimes that's the purpose of a mega seismic. One of the greatest joys, friends, one of the greatest joys of being a Christian is being able to go through the hard times. You come out and you know that there's no such thing as normal anymore. There's, there's only a new type of normal and you look back at these impossible situations where you knew that you didn't have any control. And as you look back, you can see how God has shaped you through that mega seismic. In fact, this is something that we see getting played over and over again through Scripture. What do we see in the story of Joseph? Talk about one mega seismic after another, after another. I mean, waves of mega seismic. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers, right? Then he gets trapped in a pit. He gets sold into slavery. He ends up in a foreign land. Then he gets accused of having an adulterous affair with Potiphar's wife. Then he ends up in jail. Then he's forgotten while he's in jail. In the end, he earns favor with the Pharaoh in Egypt, where he's promoted to being you know, at one of the top governing positions in the entire land. And when famine strikes back home where his brothers and his father are, and they realize, oh, we've got to do something. Let's go down to Egypt where we can get some stuff that we're going to need. And what happens? They end up coming face-to-face with Joseph. Now, these guys are the ones who caused 
this chain of mega seismics in his life. It all started with them. And listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present resolve, result, to preserve many people alive. That's from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. These mega seismics were decreed by God. Why? To shape Joseph, to make him into this, uh, this, this image of Christ, this, this kind of symbolic foreshadowing of Christ. Look at the 23rd Psalm. This is one that almost everybody, uh, believers and non-believers alike, this is one that, that almost everybody has heard. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you might read that and say, oh, isn't that, isn't that kind of inspiring? You know, uh, David is writing this and, and he's uh, picturing God as the shepherd. He's picturing himself as the sheep who's following the shepherd. But look at what the shepherd leads him to. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, how did David end up walking through the valley of the shadow of death? By following God, by following the Lord. And here again, we see that this is a decreed mega seismic, something that God has said, you need this, and this is what I'm going to lead you to. Uh, Consider the story of Job. Job was the most righteous guy on the planet. And all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, from his perspective, he loses everything except for his wife who says, you know, why don't you just curse God and die? Something every guy wants his wife to say, right? So he hasn't lost her and he hasn't lost a couple of friends who are sitting beside him and saying, man, Job, you know, we got to figure out exactly what you did here. You obviously sinned against God big time, dude. Because you're going through a mega seismic, one mega seismic after another. But what we find out is that it happened because Job was the most righteous man on the planet. His faith, the enemy saw his faith and saw that as an invitation for a mega seismic. And God didn't decree it, but God allowed it because he trusted Job with it. Any of you guys know who Matt Chandler is? Preacher down in Texas of the Village Church? Man, he is good. If you guys get a chance to listen to Matt Chandler, listen to Matt Chandler. That guy is amazing. At 37 or 38 years of age, a couple years ago, he was diagnosed with brain cancer. And it wasn't looking good. And you know what his response was? I am so thankful that God has trusted me with this cancer. That's the kind of faith that I want to have. I think that's the kind of faith that God wants to see in our lives. But in every single one of these instances, both in the Bible, Matt Chandler, the message is the same. The message that Solomon left for us in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understandings. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. The point of all this is that if we're going to follow Jesus... If we're really going to follow Jesus, we have to bring ourselves to the point where we are willing to stop trying to control the outcome of absolutely everything. And we just have to say, God, there are some things that only you can control, and I'm just going to let you do it. We need to surrender ourselves and make following him our first priority. The image of somebody 
who's trusting their own understanding is like this. Lean not on your own understanding. If I were to say that this is my own understanding, I'm not going to go far. I'm not going to go far at all. That's the image of my own understanding. But God, following the Lord, following Jesus, that is a solid rod that I can put my weight on, that can bear all of my weight, because there are going to be times when I'm too tired to go on. That's the image of trusting in the Lord with all of your heart and not leaning on your own understanding. Now, what do you think is the number one reason why Christians don't evangelize more? The statistics are are clear. It's fear. Christians are afraid to talk about Jesus. Maybe they're afraid of it triggering a mega seismic. Maybe Maybe they consider rejection by man to be something of a giant storm, a great storm in their lives. And someone might say, well, you know, Evangelism isn't my gift. Uh, you know, I, I know that's one of the gifts uh, that God gives the church. And, you know, what I'm going to do if I talk to somebody about Jesus is just make a mess of things. So really, I'm just going to leave this whole evangelizing thing to somebody who's gifted in evangelism. I'll just kind of stay out of the way. The thing is, though, that Jesus gave the Great Commission to the whole church. He didn't isolate the gifted evangelist. Listen to what, uh, what Jesus says here. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, this is the Great Commission. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So who is he addressing here? Everyone who's followed him to this point. All of them. He doesn't say, If you're an evangelist, go and make disciples. No exceptions. No excuses. He's calling us all out on this. Where are we supposed to do this? Everywhere we go. He says, go. Go, therefore. He doesn't say where in this context. He doesn't say where. Just go into the nations. Wherever. The whole world is the mission field. Go. In fact, I'd say that the Seattle area is ripe As a mission field, it is ripe. There's been a lot of progress here, thanks to Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church, over the last 15 years. There's been a ton of progress, but the harvest is still out there. The Great Commission calls for us to make disciples, calls for us to find people who are willing to surrender to Jesus because he values surrendering more than he values sincerity. So where does making disciples start? Well, it starts with Jesus, and it ends with your friends, your co-workers, your family members who don't know him being made into disciples. And guess what? This passage tells us that you're the bridge. You're that point between point A and point B. You're the point between Jesus and the people that you know who don't know Jesus. Now, you've heard me say this before. You won't lead everyone to Jesus. You won't bring everyone to Jesus. But you can and you should bring Jesus to absolutely everyone. You can bring him to them. You maybe can't bring them to him. But you can bring him to them. Now this series is called Missional. Being missional means being a part of Jesus' mission. 
on earth, to seek and save the lost. It means participating in the reconciliation of God and humanity. It means playing a role in there. And that might mean intentionally pursuing relationships with non-believers if you don't have any of those relationships right now. It might mean going outside of your comfort zone. It might mean that your world will get rocked by a mega seismic. You might get rejected. Whoever it might be, they might never talk to you again, just to be honest and upfront about it. They might not like you after you talk to them about Jesus. But if you trust in Jesus, you know that there is no mega seismic that he doesn't have authority over, that he doesn't have control over. There's nothing that's beyond his ability to control. Now, if you find yourself right now in the valley of the shadow of death, or in the future, and you're leaning on your own understanding, it's a little stick. If you're leaning on your own understanding, you might start questioning God's goodness. You might start allowing bitterness to take a little bit of a foothold in your heart. You might question with God's ability to deal with a mega seismic. That's why the proverb tells us not to trust in our own understanding because we can look at a situation that's been absolutely horrific and we might try to understand it and come out questioning God. That's why we shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be leaning on our own understanding. There's no reason for us to fear evangelism. There's no need for us to let fear Uh, Persuade us not to be a missionary right where we are in life, no matter where we go. Because wherever you are, Jesus is there. He says, lo, I am with you always. There's not a time when he's not with you. If you you encounter a hard time because you followed Jesus, you can rightfully assume he's the one who led you there or he let it happen. Being on mission is what being a Christian is all about. It starts with surrendering yourself, letting your own agenda go. And the more you trust in the Lord with all of your heart, the easier and more natural surrender will be for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you have demonstrated your love for us by sending your Son. God, I pray that you will teach us to make you our first priority. And God, teach us through conviction, through difficult circumstances, to follow you with everything that we've got. That we will abandon our own agendas, our own uh, desire to control things, God, to follow you. God, I pray that you'll see us through hard times, that you'll give us faith to make it through hard times. But God, we know that we belong to you We know that you are in this process of making us more like you. God, we are yours, and we will follow you wherever you lead us. Teach us to do that through the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit. Teach us to be more like your son, Jesus. Greater, deeper, more beautiful, higher.